Mark chapter 2. Would you turn there with me this morning? We're going to get right into our study. I told Ellie when I looked at our notes and our outline for this, I said, oh, this is going to be long. I can feel it. Not my message. Not my message. Just, just the internship thing. I never go long. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> As you guys are turning to Mark chapter 2, we're going to begin this chapter this morning. I want to read to you from Philippians 2. This will be on the screen as well. Paul wrote this to the church in Philippi, beginning in verse 5 of chapter 2. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Notice this part. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. When he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the word of the Lord. As we begin Mark chapter 2, this morning, um, in verse 10, the first recorded usage by Mark of Jesus' most preferred title for himself is used. There in verse 10 of our text this morning, Jesus is going to refer to himself as the Son of Man. It's a fascinating term. It's rooted in Old Testament scripture, and he uses the title for himself in the Gospels about 80 times. It's almost the exclusive title that Jesus refers to himself as. Understanding why Jesus refers to himself in this way as son of man is revealed by what Paul just said in Philippians chapter 2. It helps us understand the significance of not only who Jesus is, but what Mark in his gospel is wanting us to see. And that's something we should take note of. He wants us to see Jesus, the son of man, God's servant. He wants us to see Jesus through the lens of his servanthood. What Paul's describing in Philippians 2, verses 5 through 8, is the summation of the title, Son of Man. And G. Campbell would say it this way, That title linked him to other men, yet marked his relationship to God as the self-emptied one, who laid aside the powers and attributes of divine sonship and limited himself within humanity as a perfect vehicle for the doing of the work of God. What a way to think about Jesus. What a way to think about Christ, that he was the perfect vehicle for doing the work of God in this world. Think about all that Jesus has done in the first chapter of Mark's account. As we begin chapter 2, we can't help but see it through the light of chapter 1. His baptism occurred. He was tempted for 40 days by Satan in the wilderness. He called Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He preached. He dispossessed people of demons. He healed he prayed. He cleansed. All of it done without yelling, screaming, calling down fire, much to James and John's disappointment. He did it without lights. He did it without fog machines. He did it without all the things that we think we need to do ministry. He did it without microphones. He did it without Mike. Oh. Guys, remember the prophetic word spoken of what he would be like. In Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4, we read this. And we'll revisit this often because this is such a powerful reminder of, I believe, how Mark is presenting Jesus in his gospel. Isaiah writes this. As the Lord is speaking through him, Isaiah 42, This is my servant. I strengthen him. 
This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. The coasts and the islands will wait for his instruction. I love that passage from Isaiah 42 because it describes the perfect vehicle as Morgan would put it. This is what it looks like to be doing the work of God. Jesus' life as we carefully observe him is the ultimate example Jesus showed us how to be emptied as he lay aside the powers and attributes of divine sonship and was limited in human form. Tim Mackey would say it this way. He lay aside none of his deity, but he laid aside his dignity. Jesus laid aside his dignity to become a human being. He was fully God. But he laid aside that dignified part of him, emptied himself, and became one of us. Oh, that we would desire church that the Lord would empty us of our sin. That we would desire that God would empty us so that we could be filled. Empty us of our sins, our vices, our idols. So that as Jesus has already showed us in Mark chapter one, as we pray, the Father would equip us for the work that was coming that day. That's why Jesus spent so much time in prayer. He spent so much time in prayer because prayer was the equipping that he relied upon. And if Jesus relied upon prayer to equip him, how much more should we? The ministry of Jesus was empowered by the Father through prayer and through the sustaining strength of the Holy Spirit, which was working through him as he physically walked this earth. Jesus, in every moment of his life, is showing us how to be human God's way. He's showing us a better Adam. To neglect prayer will leave us powerless when we meet the lepers when we meet the sick, when we meet the possessed, the paralytics of this world. And I'm not just talking about physical brokenness. I'm talking about the kind of brokenness that Jesus is going to address here in Mark chapter 2. He's going to draw our attention to spiritual brokenness as well. And if we're going to handle those things properly, we need to spend those times in prayer with the Lord being filled by him as he empties us of flesh. God did it through Jesus. He wants to do it through us. Because he wants us to be the channels that the power, his power, flows through and accomplishes his work and his will in this world. Well, I hope you guys are ready for Mark chapter 2 because we're going to do it anyway. Here we go. Mark 2. Beginning in verse 1. We'll just do 12 verses this morning together. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together, and there was no more room, not even in the doorway, and he was speaking the word to them. They came to him bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Isn't it fascinating that we can read something like this, a true account in Scripture, and take it sitting down? Because if somebody brought a paralytic in here, and somehow the Lord healed this person, he got up and he walked out, we would be very shook. That would shake us all. That would be overwhelming. And we read it when Jesus does it, and because we've read it so many times, maybe as the church we've heard the story told so many times, we're like, uh-huh. Right? You guys, somehow, we've grown numb. We've grown numb to the reality that God has done this powerful work through Jesus and has poured himself into us via the Holy Spirit. Somehow we've grown numb and we just look at it and we're like, oh, I heard it before. It doesn't shake us anymore, and it needs to. It needs to make us astonished in the way that it just overwhelmed the people that were there. Looking at the text and looking at the setup of this is, is fascinating to me. Somehow, and we know that Jesus was having trouble with crowds. Remember what happened with the leper in the prior chapter? He told him, shh, don't tell anyone you're healed. Go to the priest, get set up to do worship again. I'm paraphrasing. Get set up to do worship again, right? Go and offer your, your sacrifice and, and, and resume fellowship. And, and he says, but don't tell anyone. And what does the guy do? He tells everyone. And now Jesus can't enter a city openly. He's out in the wilderness because he, there's just too many crowds coming to him. But what's interesting about the text as it shifts in chapter 2 is somehow he gets into Capernaum. Some days later, John sa- or Mark says, some days later he gets there. And it says that he's at home. And apparently people find out that he's there, which is mean Jesus got in sneakily. He covertly got back into Capernaum because when they find out, they all come. But somehow he got into town without them knowing. That's cool to me. Jesus snuck around. Mark very vividly describes the scene that as people find out that Jesus is there, look how vividly he describes it. So many people gathered together. There's no more room, not even in the doorway. That's an extra bit of information that John sa- or Mark says. I keep saying John. <laughs> Mark says they, they couldn't even fit inside the doorway. It's fascinating. Very vividly he describes this scene. And notice this. Jesus is there preaching the word to them. But Mark doesn't tell us what his sermon was. Now think back through chapter 1. Has Mark ever told us what his sermons have said up to this point? Last week we talked about how the Sermon on the Mount happened just prior to the leper being healed. Mark doesn't record it. Why? Those are the types of things that make me go, hmm, why? The only thing that Mark has told us of the message of Jesus, the, the portion of Jesus' teaching that he's given to us is in chapter 1, verse 15, which is Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. That's what he's told us in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Rather than focusing on the content of Jesus' preaching, which the other gospel writers will do, Mark at this point is focusing on the actions of Christ and on his interactions with people. He's focusing on what Jesus is doing, which is why over and over again I've said, lock in, pay very close attention to every movement of Christ, because that's what Mark wants us to see. He wants us to see what Jesus is doing. 
how he's interacting with people. He's going to include some dialogue between himself and the minds of the scribes in a little bit. But so far, I like that Jesus is talking to their minds. You know, they're just sitting there. He's like, hey, I know what you're thinking. My mom used to say it to me all the time. Imagine knowing that Jesus is in your town. Jesus is in your town. Jesus is here. You've heard it or maybe even seen him heal and dispossess people in the past because this is Capernaum. He's done ministry here. Someone you love, someone you love dearly is paralyzed, is hurting, is can't walk, is par- in some way phys- so physically inhibited they can't move around. What would you be willing to do to see your friend healed? What would you be willing to do? What would you stop at to see this person that you dearly love healed by Jesus? There's no way in the house. It's too packed. There's no way you're going to get to him. So what do you do? Well, these four companions of this paralytic, they make the decision to make a mess. They make the decision that would horrify me as a homeowner. There's no way in. It's true. If I'm doing a home group and one of my young adults can't get in and Faith gets up there with a pickaxe and just starts beating my roof in, you better have a crippled person up there. And also, what do you expect me to do? You guys, they tear up the roof. Most likely it wasn't extremely hard to do. If you think about the time period, most roofs were flat. Most of them were accessible by a stairway from the outside. And most of them would have maybe some tiles, laths, grass. It wouldn't have been difficult. It would have taken effort. It would have made a mess. You would have seen them coming through. They couldn't have done this quietly. And so here they come. Tearing apart the roof. It took belief on their part that Jesus was more than capable of giving their friend the ability to walk. They had more faith in what he could do than they had in their inability to get this person to him. They were going to do whatever it took because all we need to do is get to Jesus. There's a lesson in that, I think. All I need to do is get to Jesus. He's everything I need. I don't care what I have to do. All I need to do is get to him. As they lower their friend to Jesus and he looks up at them and sees their faith, that compassionate look of Christ who loves not only the one who they're lowering down to him, but these four companions who are doing the lowering. Makes sense that therefore we always picture them at one corner, each of this mat lowering this man down into the middle of the room. He looks down at the paralytic and you can imagine like, this is it. Jesus looks up at them, looks down at him. They're like, this is it. We've seen him do this so many times. And he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. What? Another thing we shouldn't take sitting down. That would not be what they expected to be said. Your sins are forgiven? It's probably worse than hearing someone say to you, I love you, and then you go, thanks. (laughs) Right? I love you. Thank you. Not what I was hoping for, but demoralized. It's okay. I'll recover. I don't know for certain, but I'm reasonably sure this is not what they expected to hear. That the Lord would look at this guy and say, your sins are forgiven. And I don't know how long he paused for effect or how long he took to listen to the scribe's thoughts, but it makes me wonder if he did pause for just a second to see what was doing to the room. 
Imagine the hearts of these four guys who lower him down, what they would be thinking to hear, son, your sins are forgiven. Cool. Well, I guess he's not walking out after all. It's so much harder to bring him back up than it was to put him down there. It makes you wonder what was going through their heads. And you're praying that you never have to see me make that face again. Perhaps, perhaps they handled it so much better than I would have, but I just think about it from my own perspective, and it's like, what would I have done? Great. How am I going to get him out of here? Just plop him in the room? Well, let him out when you're done. I mean, look at Jesus. That's my cynical thoughts. Look at Jesus. What is Jesus doing? He sees the faith by the friends, and I believe by this man himself. And he looks and gazes at him, and he calls him son. And the Hebrew word is technon, which literally means child. It wasn't just dude. He calls him a child. Child, your sins are forgiven. Something endearing about this. There's something tender about it. And guys, we have to pause at this and and we have to take note of something. That our expectations, our disappointments, are so often based on what we want to happen, not what God recognizes needs to happen. My expectations are so often based on my wants, not what God says is needed. And what Jesus demonstrates here is that forgiveness is so much more needed than a physical healing. It's not that he can't physically heal. It's that his forgiveness for sin supersedes it, and it's not even close. The forgiveness of our sins opens the door to eternal life. Physical healings are temporary. It's not that he doesn't do that. It's not that that doesn't matter to him. Clearly, he's done this already. But Jesus is teaching something very important in this situation. And our faith ought to give us perspective to this. Mark doesn't tell us if this man's faith gave him perspective for however many moments pass in between Jesus' statements. But we have a powerful reminder here of what is most important in life, and it is not spiritual, spiritual wholeness. That is not what's most important in life, is physical wholeness. Sorry, I said that wrong. That's what happens when you just trip all over yourself. Physical wholeness is not the most important thing in life. Spiritual forgiveness is. Because you guys, if we have to choose between having things the way we want them in this life or being obedient to the Father, may he grant us the grace of vision so that we don't become so nearsighted that we choose the former. That we would choose to have what we want over being obedient to him. And he's made it clear to us what is the most necessary, and that is forgiveness of sin. The writer of Hebrews describes the concept by looking at Moses. This is a fascinating verse to use in this context. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, it'll be on the screen for you. It says this, by faith, notice it brings kind of the key factor of this story, the faith that Jesus observes. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. That means that Moses forsook physical pleasure for obedience to God. That is exactly what Jesus is showing us here. Forgiveness forgiveness of sin is so much more important 
than getting what we physically want, than having what we physically feel like we deserve. The fleeting pleasures of sin cannot compare to the forgiveness we have in Christ and the reward of spending eternity with him. Whether he realized it or not, the paralytic had just heard the best news of his life. Whether he realized it or not, whether his friends realized it or not, he had just heard the absolute best news he had ever heard. Jesus had forgiven his sin. Quite possibly, the sins that caused him to be in this state. We don't know. But there are some sins that put us in the state that we're in. It's not always the case that our physical suffering is tied to sin. Jesus reveals that in John 9, verses 1 through 3. It says, as he was passing by, he saw a blind man from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Sometimes we are in the physical state we're in because of sin, and sometimes it's for God's glory. Be sure that it's not the former. Be sure that what we're suffering physically is not because of sin. And you're like, I'm just suffering. I, 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 I've confessed all that to the Lord. I've given that all to him. Continue to give it all to him and expect and wait for his strength to give you endurance through that. We don't know the cause of the paralytic's condition. The most important Words that he could ever hear were spoken first by Jesus. Son, your sins are forgiven. But these words came with controversy, didn't they? Often the truth does. Often speaking truth comes with great controversy. Some of the scribes sitting there question in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? These scribes were there to listen and observe Jesus. Luke records in his account that they had been sent to go check out what Jesus was teaching. They wanted to hear what he was saying, watch him. It was their job. It was their job if there was a rabbi that was drawing a lot of people to figure out what's being taught, how it's being taught, see if this guy's for real or not. The problem is the position of their hearts. The status of their heart is the problem. They represent the first human opposition recorded by Mark. And for the record, they're right when they say this, who can forgive sins but God alone? That's a true statement because it's a rhetorical question. No one. Only God can forgive sin. That's a good question to ask. The problem is they're wrong when they say, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming because Jesus is not. He's not blaspheming. He has the authority, and that's what he's about to tell them. You guys, don't forget that in this time, when they say he's blaspheming, that's not them saying that flippantly. When they say he's blaspheming, that was a capital offense. As it happens, the very thing that Jesus is condemned to death for in Mark 14 is blasphemy. So this isn't a light thing that they're thinking in their heads. But we discover the depth of Jesus' spiritual sensitivity as he perceives their thoughts and calls them out on them. And here's his reasoning for making his pronouncement of forgiveness prior to healing the man because he was going to deal with something deep here. Notice this. He intended to prove his authority to be able to do both. And he says that himself. Why are you thinking these things in your heart? Verse 9 says, which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Forgiveness of sins is a quality that cannot be checked against visible evidence. Forgiveness of sin is internal. 
And so anyone can claim to forgive sins. That's the point that Jesus is making. Actually having authority to do it is another thing altogether. How is Jesus to prove that he has that authority? Gets that paralytic walking. Do you want to know that I have the authority to forgive sins? Get up and walk. Jesus backs it up with the reality. He proves his right to forgive sins. He undertakes the more verifiable and still remarkable task of healing the man. There's your evidence. There's your sign. The miracle must draw our attention even more to the statement, son, your sins are forgiven. The miracle's amazing, and we should be watching in our minds this man walk out of this house. But it should draw our attention even more to, son, your sins are forgiven, and to another statement that Jesus made prior to this in Mark 1.38, where he says this. Let's go to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. Notice the last part. This is why I have come. You discovered the depth of that statement in Mark 1.38 by this interaction with the scribes and the paralytic and the faithful friends in Mark 2. This is why he had come. Jesus had come to forgive sin. Jesus had come to make atonement for sin. I believe the beginning of chapter 2 reveals the true depth of what Jesus meant. Yes, he came preaching, teaching, discipling, healing, dispossessing, cleansing, all powerful. But if it were not for his ability to forgive our sins, then all of those things would have been useless. If he could not forgive sin, all of those things were temporary in nature. Every person that was physically healed, freed from possession, cleansed from leprosy, would have died in their sin if Jesus couldn't forgive them. It's fascinating to me. You ever think about all the people that were healed, cleansed by Jesus? What happened to them later on? You can say it, it's not morbid. They died. They all died. Even Lazarus. Imagine like Lazarus at the end of his days, right? Dang it. I've already done this. Sucks. But afterwards, glory, right? Because of the forgiveness of sins. Because of what Jesus came to ultimately do. That's what matters the most. You guys, it was because of his authority to forgive, because of his mission to offer himself as sacrifice in our place, because of his ability to cleanse us as white as snow that we're truly his children. And so we can rejoice in the words as he speaks them over us in salvation. Child, your sins are forgiven. Let that hit your heart heavier than you've allowed it in a long time. Jesus Christ says to you when you place your faith in him, child, your sins are forgiven. You are clean. Look at Jesus. He proves his authority to forgive by healing this man right in front of the scribes. What a moment of opportunity had come for them. What a moment of opportunity for these scribes to fall on their knees and confess their guilt. Confess their sin. Say, forgive us our sins as well. What a moment of opportunity. And maybe they let it pass them by. Whatever it is, church, that you think you physically need, do not compare it to the importance of his forgiveness of your sin. That comes, the physical need comes second. The spiritual need is of paramount importance. 
And I tell you what, that is your source of joy. Because those who are forgiven of their sin see their physical struggles through a whole different light. Because you look at it from the perspective of the goodness of God. God can heal this if he wants to. As the people came to Jesus and said, like the leper, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Right? And Jesus said, I'm willing. We are the ones in Christ because of his sacrifice who have been forgiven. He knows our physical needs. He clearly demonstrates what takes priority and we know that we can entrust him to do the loving thing. I can entrust myself to him to do the loving thing. You guys never forget this. The cleansing of our hearts is the source of our obedience. When we allow Jesus to cleanse our hearts and forgive our sin, that is the source waters of our obedient flow. Verse 12, as we conclude this, says this, immediately he got up, he took the mat, he went out in front of everyone, and as a result, don't miss this, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The result of the work of the Son of Man is the glorification of the Father. There's a new way to be human. Sorry, I took that from Switchfoot. (laughs) BJ appreciates that. Guys, there's a, new way. <laughs> there's a new way to be human. Jesus is showing us how. Jesus is showing us how, church. And he says this. If we want to glorify God, forgiveness of sin comes first. Cleansing comes first. That's how we glorify God. From prayer in the desolate place, to the forgiveness of sin, the paralytic walking out of the house that he was lowered into. It all ought to bring glory to God. It's the purpose he sent the son for. It's the reason you are here. It's the reason I am here, is to bring glory to God, to draw attention to Jesus. It's why we're here. It's the intended result of the one who came to seek and save the lost. And if you want to save this community if you want to see them come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we have to come to our knees first. We have to be a people who come to their knees and confess and repent of sin and pray and ask God to powerfully use us in the way that he used his son when he was walking this earth. And then I believe we will see change. Then I believe we will see the lost get saved. It's a fitting time this morning. Worship team, would you come on up? It's a fitting time to share communion. This is the meal that we share together as a family. Something that's not to be taken lightly. But as we share this meal, as we take the body and the blood of Jesus together and we remember his sacrifice, we need to be hearing in our hearts and in our minds, child, your sins are forgiven. And we are experiencing as we take communion this powerful connecting reminder of our unity in him and of our collective forgiveness as we have come to call Jesus our Savior. David wrote in Psalm 103 verse 3 a perfect summary of what Jesus would do here in Capernaum on this day. He said, he forgives all your iniquity, he heals all your diseases. 
He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. Church, got some iniquity? It's like those got milk commercials. Got iniquity? This is serious. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not trying to make light of it. This is serious though. He's here to cleanse it. Right now, in this moment. What are the sins of your heart or of your life this week that are weighing heavily on you? Maybe the sins that you have been holding inside of you for decades. He forgives your iniquity. He can heal you. Will you let him? As it says in Scripture, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. Bill brought it up during prayer this morning. Open the door. This is a time to fellowship with Jesus. This ought to bring us so much joy, church, that our iniquity is forgiven. He's the healer of our souls, our emotions, our mental state. Are you burdened in your mind? Are you burdened in your emotions? Is there something that you are struggling to carry the weight for? He heals. He makes us family. Brings us together. Let's remember that this morning. I'm going to have the, the group come forward and distribute communion. We're going to take a moment. Um, we're going to sing a song and just give you time to reflect. You can sing. You can pray. Do what the Lord leads you to do. But as communion is distributed, hold on to those elements and we'll take those together. But let's distribute that this morning. And I want to pray over this. I encourage you guys to stay in this posture of prayer and worship. Lord, as we prepare our hearts to take communion, would you remind us of your sacrifice? Would you remind us that you love us so much in your gentleness, in your lowliness of heart as you self-described yourself? Jesus, that you look at us with compassion and kindness and say, children, my child, your sins are forgiven. Remind us of how you did that through communion this morning. And as we take these elements and as we pause just for a minute before we take them together, allow us to reflect on that, to consider that. Stir our hearts to worship, we ask in Jesus' name.